makes you such a threat? We choose the right to be who we are. We know the difference between the reality of freedom and the illusion of freedom. There's a way to live with Earth and a way not to live with Earth. We choose the way of Earth. It's about power. Joshua. Greetings and good day and welcome relatives. I shake your hands with a good heart. It's good for all of us to be here. This is First Voices Radio and Teokasin Ghost Horse, sending you greetings and strength from the highlands of the Asopus, or what Americans and Dutch call the Catskill Mountains. Regardless, it is the highlands of the Asopus in the lands of the Munsee-speaking Lenape. This is an all-native hosted, all-native produced First Voices Radio, and Liz Hill is a producer of First Voices Radio. You can now hear us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprout, Spotify, as well as firstvoicesindigenousradio.org for archive, downloading, and listing purposes. Our guest, Linford D. Fisher, is an associate professor of history at Brown University. He is the author of The Indian Great Awakening, Religion and the Shaping of Native Cultures in Early America and the principal investigator of a digital project titled Stolen Relations, Recovering Stories of Indigenous Enslavement in the Americas, which is a community-centered, collaborative project that seeks to broaden understanding of indigenous experiences of settler colonialism and its legacies through the lens of slavery and servitude. He is the author of more than a dozen articles, book chapters, and essays on a diverse array of topics. He's currently finishing a book-length project tentatively titled America Enslaved, Native Slavery in the English Caribbean and the United States on Native American Enslavement, English Colonies in North America and the Caribbean and later in the United States between Columbus and the Civil War. What happens when you uncover, recover, and confront indigenous enslavement stories one at a time? While this partner effort among Brown scholars, volunteers, and Native American leaders, Stolen Relations has recovered thousands of indigenous enslavement records, drawing attention to a topic rarely broached in school history lessons. About 350 years ago, in the midst of a conflict known as King Philip's War, the English captured and enslaved a group of Wampanoag native peoples. The Wampanoags were shipped by boat to Tangier, once an English colony and now a major Moroccan city. When they arrived, they wrote to Massachusetts colony pastor and missionary John Elliott, whom they considered an ally in the panic. In the letter, they essentially wrote, We were enslaved during the war. 
We're serving in Tangier, and our simple request is just to be returned to our homeland. And our guest, Linford Fisher, picks it up about the story, one of countless heartbreaking tales of indigenous enslavement that historians have only just begun to unearth in the past few decades. Now, Linford Fisher, could you talk about how this started from your studies about 350 years ago in the midst of a conflict known as King Philip's War and the English captured and enslaved a group of Wampanoag Native Americans? And would you start with that and give us a little background on, on why you started this project? And it's so interesting and fascinating. Sure. Well, thank you, first of all, for having me here, Tukasan. I really appreciate the opportunity to have a conversation with you and just uh, appreciate the work you're doing to um, elevate different aspects of, of Indigenous-related research and community and, and culture. So thank you um, for the invitation. So this project, uh, I guess, has been ruminating in my head for a while uh, since uh, my, my first book project I was working on, which is The Indian Great Awakening, which you mentioned earlier. And that book was focused on the ways in which indigenous communities in New England responded to and utilized for their own purposes um, evangelistic um uh, attempts by by the colonizers, by by Europeans, by the English especially. And uh, it, one of the things I found, I was looking through church records to find evidence of indigenous people being baptized into churches or joining churches, is that I saw a number of indigenous people being brought in sometimes by the pastors themselves. And they would say, you know, my Indian named Jim um, baptized today. And I thought to myself, like, what is going on here? Why are these English ministers bringing in indigenous slaves and servants to uh, be baptized in their own churches? It just didn't compute with my own understanding and sense of the history of slavery in colonial America and and the United States. And so that was sort of the seed that was planted. And then after that book got published, uh, even before that, I started working on this project and initially thought of it as a New England project, but really um, began to understand that it was hemispheric in terms of scope. And um, I'm not the first person to to look at this. Actually, the field of Indigenous history and Indigenous enslavement, especially, uh, really began to um, answer these or to ask these questions and answer them in the scholarship, especially starting the early 2000s. There were two books that came out in 2002. They both won the highest prize in history, in academic history in 2003. Um, the first is The Indian Slave Trade by Alan Gillet, and the second book is Captives and Cousins by James Brooks, uh, if your listeners are interested in those. Anyway, so that that understanding had been growing within the academic community of the, the sort of presence and history of indigenous enslavement in especially the sort of early modern um, period of invasion and colonizing. And so um, I was was building on that, but, but really trying to understand this uh, through a, a much broader lens. Um, there's some books that have come out in the past 10 years or so that focus on, you know, one region. And so I began to undertake this project that was um, first New England, but then out to the Caribbean and uh, actually the whole continent as well, thinking about 
the presence and and role and sort of function in a way of indigenous enslavement within uh, English settler colonialism. So that's kind of the origin of the project. Um, and around 2015, as I was in archives in Bermuda and Jamaica and the Bahamas and over in the UK and also in New England and other places, South Carolina, trying to research uh, in archives and so forth to find evidence of indigenous enslavement, began to realize that something you know, unfortunate was happening, which is that all of us, and there's not many, a dozen of us are so really working on indigenous enslavement at that time period, um, maybe more than a dozen. But uh, we were going off into the archives, we were collecting information, and then we were just sitting on it. You know, we were writing our articles and our books, which let's be honest, not many people read outside of academia. I'm fully aware of that. And so the idea for this Stolen Relations Project then was to centralize this research and to uh, place it into an online form, forum that other people could access as well. Um, and I can talk more about that um, in a minute if, if you want me to. But come back to King Philip's War, which you mentioned as well. Um, in New England, there are two specific nodes of larger scale enslavement. And they have rightfully gotten the attention. So the Pequot War in the 1630s and then King Philip's War in the 1670s. And in both of these instances, these are essentially, you know, wars of of aggression and in some cases, um, you know, genocidal wars of extermination with the Pequot War, especially uh, where the English are attempting to, you know, really eradicate uh, the presence of the Pequot tribe. Uh, The Pequots were a large, uh, numerous nation, what's now South Eastern or Eastern Connecticut. And at the Pequot War, there's uh, large-scale enslavement of Pequots. They get shipped uh, overseas. They get taken to Boston and distributed and sold into different households. Roger Williams in Rhode Island uh, gets at least one, if not two, over time. So this is a really important moment when New England Puritans uh, make a conscious choice to (laughs) relate to indigenous communities through this mechanism of um, destabilizing communities, of of grabbing land, but also enslaving uh, the Pequots. And then there's another burst of this in the 1670s. uh, During King Philip's War, King Philip's War was a complicated... um, War largely between English colonists and a collection of indigenous nations in New England, although there were were some indigenous communities that fought with the English as well, uh, which is why some scholars have called it a civil war. Uh, I don't think that's entirely appropriate because it was really uh, the colonizers largely against indigenous populations. But out of this conflict comes another massive, large-scale uh, enslavement of, of regional indigenous people. Um, as many as 2,000 uh, indigenous people in New England were enslaved, and maybe 500 or so of those were shipped overseas. Maybe even 1,000 were shipped overseas to um, Tangier, to parts of Europe, to the Azores, to Jamaica, to Bermuda, um, to other parts of North America as well. I even found some that were shipped to colonial Mexico, which is just really uh, astonishing. So this is a really important moment when, again, New England uh, relates to its indigenous populations, or the colonists in New England relate to its indigenous populations through mechanisms of warfare and enslavement. 
But I want to just step back from those two moments and say that um, enslavement and and forced servitude of an indigenous people was actually really baked into the very first moments of contact and almost all subsequent moments of contact throughout the early modern period, so-called. So the very moment Columbus uh, shows up in Iguanahani, which is an island now called San Salvador in the Bahamas, his first impulse is to, you know, he says to Christianize them, but what he actually does is enslave them. He takes almost um, 30 indigenous uh, people back to Spain and, and suggests to the king and queen of Spain that they could fund the colonization of these quote unquote new lands by a regular slave trade back to Europe just like the African slave trade. So Columbus had been to West Africa. He had seen the African slave trade in action, and that's his model for funding. It gets rejected, but he still enslaves hundreds and hundreds of indigenous people over time, sends them back to to Europe, to Spain. Um, And as we know, the Spanish, uh, this is an integrated story uh, of of Spanish colonization is this continual warfare against indigenous people and enslavement of them to serve in silver mines and gold mines in different parts of the Caribbean, Central America and South America as well. Andres Resendez has this amazing book, The Other Slavery, that really talks about this, that people are interested in that particular Spanish manifestation of this. But I guess my point is that it's not just the Spanish, it's the English, it's the French, it's the Dutch. Uh, every single European empire, um, imperial power, when they come and they start colonizing, beginning with the very first uh, exploratory, exploratory so-called trips of, of adventurers and so forth who touch base in Florida, touch base in uh, what's now Florida, touch base in what's now New England um, or the Caribbean, they kidnap local indigenous people. They use them for their knowledge. Sometimes they take them back to England. Sometimes they outright enslave them. Um, and so we, even before the English officially lands uh, in 1607 in Jamestown or 1620 in um Plymouth or 1630 in Boston, they too have been a part of this process of kidnapping and coercing indigenous populations. And so uh, one of the most famous, one of the examples of these in New England in 1614, a captain named Thomas Hunt uh, tricks 27 Wampanoags on the coast of Cape Cod, lures them onto a ship and then takes them to Spain and sells them as slaves. And one of them especially makes his way back over time. His name is Squanto or Tesquantum. And he comes back to a village that has been devastated by diseases, but then also is is a a sort of broker when the the pilgrims arrive in 1620. But this happens before 1620. So our narratives of (laughs) these early interactions, uh, at least as they're taught in textbooks for the English uh, colonizers, are you know, Jamestown and and Plymouth. But that 1614 moment really sets the tone and is just as equally present through other parts of this English period of colonization as are the other aspects of trade and, you know, um, religious interactions and stuff like that as well. That's quite the history so far. I want to also refer to a few things you said. You spoke earlier of indigenous peoples proselytizing towards each other and then 
the question of the 2,000 that, that you mentioned that were enslaved, first of all, was that a result of after the war, after the, the disease that only 2,000 were taken? It seems like there would be much more taken. Yeah, it, it's a good point. Um, I think that you have to remember that the English, while they are numerous and um, by some accounts have different kinds of technology that might give them some advantage in some situations. Uh, they're not like dominant at this point. Um, King for the War in the 1670s is a moment when the English thought they might be kicked out of New England. So, I mean, they were like talking about building a wall around Boston and, you know, uh, towns in sort of central Massachusetts and parts of Connecticut were abandoned completely because they were fleeing back to sort of strongholds closer to Boston. So, I don't think the English had the manpower or the capacity to enslave more, if that makes sense. Um, and there's other ways in which this enslavement took place as well. It depends how you count the numbers. Um, but one of the, the tricky and, and sort of um, pernicious things that the English leaders did in this time period in King Philip's War is they actually... Um, offered that if indigenous communities would come and surrender themselves or individuals would come and surrender themselves, they would be treated uh, with mercy. But that mercy typically involved forced indenture for up to 20 or 25 years, especially for children. And so even indigenous communities that weren't actively rebelling, so-called rebelling, fighting the English and and followed instructions and came and surrendered themselves, even they could be forced into positions of unfreedom and servitude over time. And so um, the numbers may even be higher than we think, um, but that's just at least some of the estimates that I and other people like Margaret Newell, who's been working on this too, so in New England. Again, you spoke of indigenous peoples proselytizing towards each other did that was a result were they forced to become of course we know this because i've been on martha's vineyard where christian town was there and as you know one side is christian and the others were were basically killed because mm -hmm. they didn't accept christianity either you have to accept it or not so mm -hmm. a lot of these people mm -hmm. that well i'm going to be christian because it's the only way to survive mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. how much of that influence have you studied or have come up with about people enslaving ideology towards accepting this because they're, we're going to be killed if we don't. Is there anything that, that in the research you're doing leading to that? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I like the way that you frame that, which is, uh, in a way, it's, it's about strategies of survival. And, and I think one of the challenges of studying something either like religious encounters or proselytization or enslavement or even this history of settler colonialism and European invasion more generally is that I think it's too easy to say, uh, you know, to focus on the, the damage that was done, right? Um, and to, you know, frame in a way indigenous populations as, as purely victims. But if you think about it from their perspective, they were strong and powerful, and uh, almost all these communities and nations um, survived and are still here today, and, and which is amazing and incredible and miraculous. And so I think about this in terms of just what you said, strategies of survival. What does it mean when 
individuals or even sometimes whole communities adopt Christianity, right? Um, does that mean that, that, that Christianity has won or that Europeans like won in that way? Like, no, you have to think about this, as you were saying about indigenous perspectives and, and strategies of survival. I think it doesn't necessarily mean that these, the embracing of Christianity was somehow false either, right? Uh, that's the tricky thing is there seems to be real indigenization of some aspects of European religion over time that have persisted. And, and what do we do with that as scholars or in, you know, indigenous communities today that prefer to focus on more traditional elements of religion and culture? I think it can be challenging, but from what we can see, it, a lot of indigenous communities use um, recognizable European forms like churches and like church services and even schools as places of cultural and um, political and community autonomy and sovereignty. And I think that's really an amazing part of this is that, you know, you take the tools of the colonizers writing, you know, different kinds of religious services and structures and churches, but you use them in service of your own community. And to me, that's that's the amazing thing. With enslavement, it's a little more challenging, but I think it's in that same mode of, of strategies of survival. If you are the Pequots in King Philip's War, for example, you're fighting with the English, you're fighting against the Narragansetts, against the Wampanoags, um, you're helping to round up Wampanoag and Narragansett and Nipmuc people um, so the English can enslave them. It doesn't really compute, but I think part of it is that as I understand this history, and I'd be happy to be corrected here, but from what I can see from the documentation we have, individual nations saw themselves as as Pequots, not as like pan-Indian identity, right? Like that comes a little bit later, I think, where that sense of like it's all of us against all of them. In the 17th century, there was still a sense of like we're Pequot or we're Narragansett. They might be interrelated. They might, you know collaborate in some ways, but um, it was about the survival of their community. And so I think that's one way to understand why we see indigenous nations doing things that through a later lens of pan-Indianism or pan-Indian solidarity seems confusing. But again, that's just my perspective from the archive, and and maybe that's that, that doesn't ring true with other people or your listeners or yourself. Yeah, I'm I'm very interested in in that veil, those veils that you talked about that were basically muddled or mystified or whatever the mm. words that this indigenous slavery and it mm. wasn't always called slavery. Some of the documentation can prove that this happened, but yet things were buried beneath it and saying, "Well, this was okay because they were indentured," or yet. These, these meticulous records that you're looking for aren't always there, not always readily available, as I've, I've heard. This long-forgotten history, we know there were so many millions of Native people taken, but most people don't hear this going to school, not even Native people. And so even that discrepancy between peoples is kind of like, well, we were here first, your tribe is being paid too much attention to. But that's what we, This I think this project is overcoming, is that, look, it happened to all of us on a broad scale. So when I think about your project, Stolen Nations, I'm thinking that started, we hear it today with, with the stolen and missing murdered indigenous women, but yet this yeah. started way back 
And what happened to those slaves, so-called native slaves that went to another country, we never heard from before. There's no accounting of that, is there not? Yeah, it's, it's a really great point that often, too often, the archives that we have, the records that we use today uh, are, are largely written by colonizers and with very specific purposes. And so there's lots of silences and gaps in them. And so if information uh, didn't serve the purpose of colonizers or masters or owners or whatever, um, it wasn't really recorded. And so many, many people just you know, thousands of, of indigenous people disappear into the silences of of the past because there's nothing in particular that would have been recorded about them. So they labored on plantations, they labored in households, they got shipped overseas. And as you say, the vast majority, uh, we never hear more from them after a point of sale or after you know, uh, something is recorded in a transaction or a book of transactions or a colonial record or something. The one exception, and one of the sources we've been using is um, newspaper advertisements for runaway slaves. Uh, and so we, we, the field has started to call them self-emancipated advertisements instead of runaway slave advertisement, which I think is really great. And they exist in the thousands for both African, enslaved Africans, as well as enslaved indigenous people. And what's really amazing about these records is that, um, and well, let me say they start right away in 1704 is the first um, permanent or long-term newspaper that's published in the English colonies. It's in New England and Boston. And right away, within six weeks of the founding that paper, there's an advertisement for an enslaved indigenous person who's run away. It's, it's astonishing. It just makes you realize how ubiquitous, ubiquitous it is. The other thing, though, that I think comes from this is that the detail given in these self-emancipated slave ads uh, is is that you have the the the, the details exquisite, meaning that like the um, so-called master or owner uh, who had someone run away or self-emancipate is trying to communicate through a newspaper advertisement um, or give clues for how other people can find them and, and, and return them back to this person. So it's not just a name sometimes if you have that, but it's like the hair, shape and color and length, um, the f- sort of facial features, any kind of scars or tattoos or branding that the owner would have put on the body of the person as well, the clothing the person was wearing. So the details uh, that you have from these self-emancipated uh, slave advertisements are are really exquisite and useful for us in terms of thinking about different demographic realities and so forth. But it's only one small sub-segment of the total enslaved population. Um, sometimes if enslaved indigenous people ran away, a master, if they weren't valuable enough, quote-unquote, um, a master or an owner might not advertise for them, right? Um, or may, many, many people never ran away, so they would never be uh, marked or recorded uh, in some sort of a colonial record in that way. So, you have to think about the records we have as only being little snippets about of the whole picture. And so what we have been interested in is trying to supplement that with um, with oral history and, and tribal knowledge and testimony and tribal records and documents. And so um, that's ongoing. It's, it's not uh, something that, that is, is um, you know, 
easy for for the our collaborators at least to to talk about and provide information for which is perfectly fine it's a really hard topic and sometimes there's really no documents uh, there might be memory and oral histories that are a little more general but it, there's there's no uh, specific documentation at least back in the 17th century so the documents are part of the problem. And as you say, there, there's there's a lot of people we just can't account for. And so the, the title of the project, Stolen Relations, was actually something that came to us through our tribal collaborators here in New England, who, when we asked them, like, what is the meaning of this history and how can we communicate an Indigenous perspective about these you know, really challenging and difficult series of events in a way that that recognizes the actual events, the original events in the 17th and 18th century and beyond, but also speaks to the present and recognizes the continuity of the past and present and the historical trauma today that still emerges out of this for communities. Yeah. And so they suggested stolen relations, which I love because it speaks to it, it turns, it challenges the academic perceptions, perceptions, excuse me, of what slavery is. So for academic slavery and historians of slavery, slavery is about labor, right? You enslave someone to labor on a plantation or to produce tobacco. And what this does is it, it says, no, it's not about labor. That's a colonial mindset. It's about uh, the effect of stealing someone from a community. And so if you have that perspective, then all these academic debates about was it chattel slavery, was it indenture, was it a limited term servitude, was it debt peonage, was it something else, doesn't really matter as much because it's the same effect for communities is that people were stolen from, from them. Each record matters, as you say, and that is just an unsettled reminder of the systematic violence that was always ongoing subjugation of your of by Europeans employed against to build their empires, I think you said. Could you talk a little bit about the Stolen Relations website and where you're going with that? So uh, we have a website. It's indigenousslavery.org. If people want to take a look, uh, there's nothing um, publicly available in terms of the database we're building, but we have received a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's a three-year grant that will allow us to build a public interface. We have a team of research assistants that are actively putting in information uh, into the database. We have about 4,500 individuals in the database so far, but we have a lot of other materials that other people are also um, suggesting to us. So if any of your listeners have leads or insights or documents that they could share with us, we have research assistants that we can uh, use to enter in the information. So I, th I hope that this will be public in about a year or so. Um, we will see uh, how quickly we can get this up and running, but we really are actively seeking uh, collaborators. So even if you have any of your listeners who want to be trained to enter information into the database uh, on a volunteer basis. We have room for that as well. We're willing to train them. Um, it can all be done remotely, so there's no need to be in the Providence area necessarily. Um, but our hope is, as I sort of suggested earlier, that this is not just an academic project, that this is something that first and foremost, especially since 2019, when we really tried to reposition the project, it is first and foremost for tribal nations and indigenous communities. And if that can also be of use then for 
the wider public, for academics, um, that's great. But that's why we're focusing on people, why we're focusing on stories, why we're focusing on family networks. And our hope is that uh, this can be a way of, of individuals, of families, of nations, and indigenous nations, um, reconnecting in a way with people who have been silenced and buried in the archive. So there's not a readily available website uh, address to go to, or is there? Only indigenousslavery.org, which has a description of the project, but the actual database we're still building and working on and doing some cleaning of information. And I hope within a year that will be public as well. Okay, thank you. for It's very encouraging that you're doing this work. We're speaking with Linford B. Fisher, who's an associate professor of history at Brown University. And we've been talking about the native slavery in the English Caribbean and the United States and especially stolen relations and recovering stories of indigenous enslavement in the Americas. And this is your uh, effort. Thank you so much, Lyndon, for being here. Thank you, Tiakasan. I really appreciate it. And uh, we will hopefully speak again. This is First Voices Radio, voicing from the heart. My name is Teokasen Ghostors, and I'm from the Minikoju Itazipchola Lakota out of Cheyenne River in South Dakota. And as usual, of course, we voice, we voice from the heart. And I'd like to thank you for being here on First Voices Radio and listening to us here. So we're just going to go out with some music, go play some music here for you all and sit back and kick back and Contemplate the thoughts that were in the first half with Linford Fish about the enslavement of Native peoples. Something really unknown, relatively unknown, although talked about and researched. Now we're hearing about it, and within the next three years, we'll hear more about it. So I'd like just to go to some music. You're on, Malcolm. Here we go, finally. Well, I don't know, there goes our program. Later.
across the land The people of the horses The people of the plains The people from the desert And the ones from the sea Branches from Ancient trees Sights I've seen in the depth of the world and the heart of 
times I've been Each one reflected in the states I'm in States I'm in
That's Leela Gilded. You heard the two songs, the beginning and the end of that little trilogy. Leela Gilday is a Diné Canadian singer, songwriter, born and raised in Yellowknife Northwest Territories. She's released five solo albums since 2002, two of which have won the Juno Award for Indigenous Music Album of the Year. And the songs that she sang, I cannot pronounce. Of course, one is Rolling Thunder, and the, Latin, the next one is, yeah, Kaneta Natsuju from her album North Star Calling. In the middle of that was Bruce Coburn with States I'm In from the album Bone on Bone. My name is Teokusen Ghostors, and this is First Voices Radio. I'd like to say, We'll see you next time, because uh, I want you to live. I want you to live. So stay tuned. We're going to go out with From the Beginning, From the Beginning with Emerson Lake and Palmer from the trilogy album way back when, when I was just a knee-high to... A grape soda pop, as they used to say. So there you go. Later on, see ya. Doksha ake.
just a kid.